Welcome to the SAS pod. So today we're doing things a little bit differently. Um, I've been wanting to talk to my colleague and friend, Sharika Thiranagama, who is an associate professor of anthropology at Stanford and also currently a fellow at the Stanford Humanities Center. I've been meaning to talk to her about her research, but we're bringing her in today to give us an update on current events in Sri Lanka. So Sharika, I do very much look forward to having conversations with you further along the way about your long-term projects and research, but today we're just going to talk about Sri Lanka as it is now. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much, Dalita. And let me begin by um wishing you and all the listeners, though they may listen to it after the fact, but it's um, April the 14th, which is Tamil and Singhala New Year. So happy new year to um, to everybody. It's, happy it's, new a, year. it's a precipitous new year um, celebration in Sri Lanka. And at the moment, I think that um, most people are celebrating it by wondering what, what the future holds is a very, very uncertain moment right now in Sri Lanka. It's, it's a moment of both hope and despair. So the despair has to do with the kind of terrible economic and political um, climate and the situation. And I can talk a little bit about that and what it is right now, what's a long-term situation. But there is a very, very dire in, in the short-term economic situation. And the future looks very, very bleak and the options are seem limited. At the same time, this is a moment of hope for me and some others because in the midst of this um, desperation, people are very, very angry in Sri Lanka. And since about March the 30th, we've seen um, nightly protests, daily nightly protests growing in strength every day. Um, and at times happening all across the island, though it's been very little reported in the Western media. Mm -hmm. And in fact, even now, though it's reported a little bit on Twitter and so on, some of the most of the protests in the last four or five days have been reported from the capital city, Colombo. But in fact, they are actually occurring in many other places. And so that why, why have the protests started? Well, basically, um, when I, when I was there in Sri Lanka in January, um, the situation was already pretty bad. The, the government was facing an, an immense economic crisis because um, since about September last year, it's been using up its foreign exchange reserves. And I can explain why, because there's a longer term economic situation that leads to it doing that. But in the short term, what that meant was that we were Sri Lanka was running out of dollars. And when you run out of dollars, you can't pay to unpack the uh, unload the container ships, even in the in the dock, you have fuel shortages, you have electricity increasingly electricity shortages, because there's no fuel to man the, the, um, you know, the electricity board is no longer able to run effectively. Um, pr prices for food rocketed. 
at first the the government tried to control this by maintaining a cap but then it let go of the cap and so it's just become incredibly unsustainable so since I, I returned from Sri Lanka in February, but after that, things only got worse. Mm. So in February, there were daily power cuts announced, scheduled power cuts every day by the electricity board. Fuel shortages were resulting in long, long lines at, the, at all the gas stations. Food prices were so bad, it's so expensive um, that, you know, you know, people are actually starving in Sri Lanka. They are sometimes surviving on one packet of food. A man was arrested for stealing milk powder packets because milk powder was one of the things that actually went. So people are really, really desperate and they were very, very angry and they put the blame squarely on the current government mm-hmm. um, for the, the kind of crisis that, that we are in. And, and in March 30th, 13-hour um, power cuts were announced in the day. So if you can imagine at that point, um, all the school exams have already been canceled in Sri Lanka because there's no paper to print. There's a scarcity of paper to print the exams on. People mm-hmm. are expected to go to work. Children are expected to go to school, though there is long power cuts. People are waiting in long lines for fuel and food. And so they were very, very angry. So and is that, the lack of fuel at the heart of this? Just to kind of sum up where we are, what, what I'm hearing you say so far, there's no fuel. And the reason there's no fuel is because there aren't any dollars to pay for fuels. And the reason there aren't any dollars is the government emptied out its foreign exchange reserve. No, it, it's not quite that simple. The fuel is just one of the one of the many things that there's shortages on. I think that the real crisis is food, and that is a real issue, because any bailout that will happen will not address the the enormous food scarcity in 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 Sri Lanka. And there's there's a number of ways in which we got to got to this situation. But the the running out of dollars is a major cause for the current shortage because Sri Lanka has an enormous um, enormous amount of debt to a variety of foreign lenders. Yeah. So what really happened from January onwards is that Sri Lanka doesn't have enough money in its coffers to pay its debt. Yeah. And it's been choosing to prioritize paying its debt as well instead of prioritizing paying for essential goods for, 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 for people. Mm-hmm. And this is a government that um, came in with an uh, with enormous popular mandate in 2019. And that, and that itself is quite problematic um, because I have a very different take on the government, but they were popularly elected in 2019. And their slogan in 2019, the election manifesto was vistas of prosperity and splendor. So just to just to put, put that in perspective, so some of the protesters have now been saying vista, vistas of austerity and plunder right. um, at the so on March the thirtieth or the, I mean, not at the end of March. I'm trying to remember if it's the thirtieth or the thirty first. It's the days are blurring a little bit for me. Yeah. Protesters, um, for the last few months, there have been regular but small peaceful protests in various junctions. People have been coming out and standing silently, but it's been fairly low key, very peaceful, very low key. 
on at the end of March, one of these spilled over into a much larger up, um, feeling of anger and people surrounded the president Gotabaya Rajapaksa's private residence mm -hmm. and started shouting, go home, go, and they shouted all kinds of slogans. They broke through the barricades. And since that day, every day we have seen more and more people on the streets all around Sri Lanka. Every day I have woken up or gone to bed at night with, with um, people tweeting out live videos. At first, the president installed, um, put on emergency rule, which gave them sweeping powers. They brought out the police, they brought out the security cannon, but people just kept on coming because they also, I mean, what are they going to go home to? They're going to go home to hours of power cuts. So the government has had to take back the image. It's kind of an invocation of um, emergency rule. They've had regular meetings. They're keeping on calling MPs, the whole cabinet resigned, but essentially the protesters aren't going away because the thing they really want is they want the Rajapaksas to leave office. And that is one of the fundamental demands that every day the protesters say they want the Rajapaksas to, to, to leave office and they're content with nothing less. So to understand a little bit about how we got to this, I, I have to explain who the Rajapaksas yes, are. Yes, I think and that's important. And there's two ways to see the Rajapaksas. So there's a way in which the Rajapaksa um, family is viewed by the majority Sinhalese population who voted, who voted, have voted them in very regularly. And then there's a way in which they're seen by minority communities, Tamils and Tamils and Muslims, which is quite different. Mm. So right now, there are five Rajapaks. There were, I mean, now the cabinet has resigned. Let's say that prior to the prior to Jan, uh, you know, February, March this year, there were five Rajapaksas. Um, in the in the cabinet alone, the president Gotabaya Rajapaksa, the prime minister Mahinda Rajapaksa, the prime minister's son Namal Rajapaksa, the, and the prime minister and president's two other brothers Chamal Rajapaksa and Basil Rajapaksa. So, and a huge untold number aside from that of networks of their family and cronies have really been kind of at every level of of government. Right, so this is this this family has had a has a stranglehold over Sri Lanka, the ruling the ruling government. They have reconstituted parties around them mm. to come to power. So they started off in one party, they reconstituted that, they have reconstituted again. So they're the heart of the of the ruling um, co coalition. And they are really appealed to a kind of singular, the majority community heartland constituency. Now, what they're also very well known for is a lot of corruption, a lot of cronism, a lot of corruption. Basil Rajapaksa, for example, at the uh, elder brother when he was the Minister for Development, all kinds of schemes went on under them and they sponsored all kinds of infrastructure projects, massive infrastructure projects, some which really have transformed Sri Lanka. You have all these roads and so on, some which are just complete white elephants, like lots of loans to build a coming failed airport, port cities and so on. So we've, and of course, as you know, infrastructure is a major way to skim and to crap. So one of the things that people are protesting about is the looting of the country as they see it by the Rajapaksa 
clan, both Gotoba and Basil Rajapaksa are green card holders. They're American green card holders, in fact. Um, and so, you know, so the, the protesters have been chanting, your children, our children are here, your children are in America. So, you know, um, and in fact, one of their children actually lives in LA. So there is this, so what they have brought is an enormous amount of corruption and foreign loans. And, and they've badly mismanaged the economy around that because, you know, they have all these repayment um, schedules that they've been, Sri Lanka has run a very, very high debt for a long time. And there are two, th there's one thing that, um, you know, there are two things that the government relied upon always to get them out of trouble was tourism right. and, and um, remittances, like right. foreign exchange. Now, what happened um, when they came back to power in 2019, and I, and, I, and I want to talk about that return because that has a lot to do with how the minorities see the Rajapaksas. But here I'm giving you kind of the convention the conventional story. Yeah. When they came back to power in 2019, they, in this massive populist move, decided to embark on this series of big tax cuts, mm -hmm. especially on things like sale tax, which was, you know, really kind of benefited all this business community. And, you know, so that's the vistas of splendor and prosperity. Yeah. But Sri Lanka's revenue dropped dramatically as, as a result. And then the pandemic hit and, and Sri Lanka's reliable earner, which is, um, which is tourism, has, you know, just couldn't, couldn't be the kind of thing that always kept the country going. I mean, so all kinds of things. So the pandemic did in fact interrupt the ways in which the government always got out of trouble. Yeah. Essentially. And, you know, for example, the to, in, through the pandemic most recently, Sri Lanka's two most profitable tourist markets were Ukraine and Russia. It's kind of a perfect storm, really. So both Ukrainian and Russian tourism has also, as you can imagine, dropped massively in the, in the last few, few months. So, and, you know, the government did all these very ill-fated things. For a long time, there's been a proposal to try and and sort of gradually easing more organic farming um, fertilizers into Sri Lanka. That's been a long-term project of different governments, and that is something that people talk about. But what happened last year was that um, because they were uh, the government didn't got, were persuaded themselves that it was cheaper because they thought they, that because buying fertilizer would be a big use of dollars, that they would save money by turning Sri Lanka organic. Um, at the drop of a hat. So they so they didn't ease it in. They just declared that only organic fertilizers were to be used in Sri Lanka so they could save a quick buck. Mm -hmm. But farmers were very angry because they had been promised subsidies to help them ease. Mm -hmm. There were no subsidies. Mm -hmm. There were no, the, so last year's harvest was terrible. All these farmers across Sri Lanka in all the areas suddenly found that they could that they that they just did had a really really bad harvest so on one hand the western press is like oh sri lanka is the first country to go organic right. and they were lauding it and those of us are like no this is like terrible you don't understand this is not like some green gesture this is making a cheap buck at the cost of 
people's everyday livelihood. So when this happened, we already had a very bad year. By, so the, the, this running out of dollars and the foreign exchange has been happening for a long time, but there's been a very bad harvest last year. Right. So food prices are, have been a major concern for lots of ordinary people. So this is like just some of the, just a little bit of one piece of the economic picture. Now there's another piece of the economic picture before I talk about the problems, the political problems of this government. The other piece of the economic picture is that since the nine, you know, Sri Lanka became independent in 1947. And since the fifties, we've had a very profound and deep welfare state. So Sri Lankans have had free education, they've had free health care, we have capped um, and we have capped prescription prices, unlike the US. So many of the things that people campaign for in the US, Sri Lanka has had for a very long time. And Sri Lankans expect, even though it's been a very poor country, it's been changing recently because inequality has been rising very dramatically. So you have, when they say it's a middle-income country, they mean there's a whole new, new warish who, um, but essentially people demand and think that it is our right to have basic services and that any state, whether it's in war or whether it's not in war, should provide basic, um, basic services for the country. Mm -hmm. And that is a, just a fundamental expectation. Mm -hmm. Now, th the current economic crisis has put all of that into into question mm -hmm. and any prospective IMF bailout, which is being presented constantly as one of the um, alternatives, but um, one of the choices we have no choice about, will, will threaten some of that because even though we've taken IMF loans before, the IMF has consistently wanted, as it does for um, poor countries, for Western countries, it, it accepts that they're going to run a high level of public spending, but it, it still enforces these very outdated um, kind of um, structural adjustment policies on poorer countries when it gives bailout and it insists on certain kinds of restructuring. So the IMF for a long time has said it would like Sri Lanka to privatize its railway. Sri Lanka has an excellent railway service, has excellent public transport, mm -hmm. really great railways, very cheap. You can get a 10 rupee ticket from my father's house in Kalania to the heart of uh, Colombo, like 10 or 15 rupee. People do that commuter train all the time. So it would like us to privatize the railways and it has long wanted a, a better, a, a more expensive private university sector in Sri Lanka to flourish it because Sri Lanka's university system is so very public university orientated. It would like water to be much more expensive than, than it is. So there are many kinds of adjustment policies. So that's why I say that there's a little bit of despair right now in this moment because wherever we're heading, the, the choices that we are being presented with really threaten in many ways what, what Sri Lankans actually think that a state should right, right. Pr provide for its people. And one of the things I hope is that I hope those who are going to bail us out, look at the protesters on the streets and what, and what the protesters are saying, because the protesters are saying, we want you know, basic essential, we want this kind. And they realize that popular protest is very much for preserving Sri Lanka's welfare 
state and for a kind of decent and dignified life. Now, having said all of that, at the same time, I have to give you this other kind of picture and why, for example, minorities are both, um, you know, kind of very pleased about this moment that there are protesters around Rajapaksa, but also a little suspicious and a little bit, little bit worried. So, you know, Sri Lanka has had this very long has had a kind of had a 30-year civil war that ended very brutally in 2009 but it's a very long-running ethnic conflict since the since since independence and we've had very frequent um, kind of legislation and riots against Tamil minorities Mm -hmm. um, in Sri Lanka by the Sinhalese majority government. Now that um, that culminated in the civil war where you had, in the 70s, you had all these Tamil militant groups that came up because they lost faith in parliamentary democracy. And then one particular group became supreme and in fact absorbed or eliminated the other Tamil militant groups in a very brutal way. Also, that's the liberation tigers of Tamil Ulam known as Tamil tigers. So these, the the civil war in the, you know, the the later decades was fought out between the Sri Lankan state and the LTT. And it, and you know, there were many war crimes committed throughout. Um, And within that you also, um, the Sri Lankan Tamil Muslims who are found scattered all over the island. They're another minority, another Tamil speaking minority, but also are in the North and East were also really caught up in the war. The LTT was also very anti-Muslim. Um, for example, and these are things that I have talked about in my work because I look at Tamil and Muslim minorities. Now, what's pertinent about the Rajapaksas is that it was the war ended in 2009, as I said, in this very, very brutal way in this fight out between the LTT and the Sri Lankan state, you know, where the Sri Lankan state um, pushed the LTTs into a smaller and smaller strip. The LTT kind of marched on along with 285,000 uh, or more, I would say about 300,000 Tamil civilians actually. And um, the, the LTT wouldn't let people leave the, their area and the Sri Lankan state consistently used cluster bombs. It would bomb, it would declare places as safe places like hospitals and, and then bomb them as well. So untold crimes were committed. And uh, maybe more than 40,000 Tamils died in two months alone in April and May in um, in, in 2009. Mm-hmm. And after the, the LTT were crushed by the, the Sri Lankan state, 285 Tamils were incarcerated in, in detention camp, but in security camps for around a year for security clearances before they were allowed to go home. And many people also disappeared from the camps also after the end of the war. And there's a, a very big movement called the Mothers of the Disappeared. Some of them are also singular who've been demanding for years to know what has happened to their children. And they have been staging um, many, many protests day after day. Um, and it's, it's, it's very poignant because, um, and I'll explain why it's poignant at this moment. So the prime minister in charge of that 
brutal end of the war was Mahinda Rajapaksa. Mm-hmm. And his defense, who is currently the, the, the president in charge of that, was Mahinda Rajapaksa. Mm-hmm. And he's currently the prime minister. Mm-hmm. His defense secretary was his brother, Gotabaya Rajapaksa, mm-hmm. who is currently our president. So both of these men have command responsibility for the murder of thousands. It's very, very clear that they did. Gotabaya was the commander. In, he was a defense secretary. There are these generals who they promoted also who have responsibility for the killing of thousands. This, so the Rajapaksas for minorities will never not have the aura of this. They are war criminals. Now, they won that. They were incredibly popular in Sri Lanka because they won the war, as it was seen. And that has winning the war in 2009 has been their way of getting electoral victory every time. So after 2009, the army wasn't, um, the Sri Lankan army wasn't demilitarized, it was expanded quite massively, actually. So it, it has only grown since the end of the war. The north and east, is, especially the north, has a very, very dense population of state security forces. And the, the, the special task force, which is a paramilitary police force from the 1970s, which started in the 1970s, has had really, really also risen to prominence. Now, what happened with, um, is that also after the end of the war, you saw the rise of anti-Muslim riots and anti-Muslim um, fervor. So the Sri Lankan Buddhist monks have been at the forefront of this. There are a particular kind of right-wing chauvinist monk order called BBS, Bodhubala Sena, began rising after the end of the war. The Sri Lankan monk sanghas have often called for violence against what they call terrorists and against minorities, but in particular since 2009, their attention of the state and, the, and of popular racism and these, and these new radical right-wing monk orders has turned against Sri Lanka's Muslim minority. So we've had two or three riots. We've had all kinds of boycotts of Muslim goods. And this is, and so it's, it's not just been for Tamil minorities, but it's also been for Muslim minorities that, that the majority population, the Sinhalese have increasingly felt very, very openly about voicing extremely Islamophobic and racist sentiments against the minorities. In 2015, the country actually voted out the Rajapaksas. They were very sick of their cor- corruption. And, but, and they brought in a whole new government which, who promised much and delivered very little. Mm-hmm. So in 2019, that new regime that we all thought maybe would do something, but it was still composed out of these mainstream parties, um, had largely failed to deliver on comprehensive political or economic reform, though they had made some things better. They had set up, a, they had promised to set up an office for disappeared people. I mean, certain things seemed a bit better. 
but they had largely failed to deliver. There were still corruption scandals. And then the 2019 Easter bombings happened. Mm. So anyway, at the end of 2018, the new elections were going to happen in 2019. It seemed clear that the Rajapaksa would maybe come back into power, but it was, it, it was seemed very possible, but not entirely. And at the, in December, the Rajapaksas um, tried to stage a constitutional coup um, and try to, 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 in fact, try to take over. But at that point, the constitutional coup failed and the Supreme Court ruled against them. So people thought, okay, maybe they've overplayed their hand to get back into power. But then the Easter bombings happened in 2019. It was very bungled by the government um, in terms of the, the security you know, it was a terribly tragic event. So the Rajapaksas came back into power, promising their 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 trick is to say that we we will keep you safe. Yeah. We're very good at dealing with terrorists. We can handle this. Yeah. So the 2019 kind of Easter bombings really propelled them back into. Now, the interesting thing about that is that. After that, after the 2019 bombings, so many people have been arrested unfairly. There are hundreds of Muslims in, incarcerated with, um, without the possibility of bail because they've been taken in on almost visible reasons uh, for the 2019, for Easter bombings. But still no perpetrators have been found. And you'll see that there's a big conspiracy theory in Sri Lanka right now, in the last two or three months, where a lot of people actually think that the Rajapaksas have some hand in the 2019 bombings. So it's very interesting. One of the big protest marches that happened just last week is that people marched from the church that was bombed in Negambo, very, um, and, and they, mar they marched all along to, to the capital. Um, asking where this is where it all became. They started in Kochikade and they marched, and people and other people came out, and they gave them tea and drinks and so on. So many of the people who were marching were those who had lost family members in the Easter bombings, and they are placing a lot of the blame at the gaum at the Rajapaksas actually. So it's become so there's all it's all very murky but these are the two sides so one of the reasons why minorities are cautious is because tamils and tamils especially but also muslims so muslims have been out protesting very bravely in the in southern sri lanka but they're worried that in the north and east if you come out to protest the sri lankan state really clamps down very hard on minority protests and it has done for a long time so people are cautious about about doing that and they're also like well you know this is like the majority population doing these big protests is it going to last will they will this mood right now will it turn can it turn against us very quickly will it turn against us very quickly i mean i'm very pro protest and even i who am like pro-protest, like sharing videos, exhilarated by it. Even I have a little moment where I think if I was there, would I go on a protest with lots of, as a Tamil, 
with lots of Sinhalese people shouting slogans. Right. Would they turn against me? Right. I don't know. If a Buddhist monk turns up and says, oh, the fault is actually all the fault of these minority terrorists. So, so there's both this kind of very beautiful spirit about the protest, but there's always this underlying tension, which is our decades and decades of riots and anti-minority sentiment which has come not only from the state but also from the larger community that there's always this fear will it will it sure. turn so this is that this is so that in some ways though it seems like they're different both the civil war and the current economic mismanagement they collide in the hands of this family yeah. who have always yoked militarization and anti-minority yeah. Um, uh, my, minority policies as their way of winning elections and bringing their so-called vistas of splendor and what is it? Vistas of prosperity and, and splendor. These two things really go hand in hand. And this is why the protest is saying we don't want, uh, we just want all of them gone. So the right. slogans like go home, go ta, got to go, go ta. Then they say also go ta has to go and also Go to Bayago, go to Ayago, you know, so he's also his brother should go. So right. they are really, this is this is the crux of it. Nobody believes it anymore, which I'm very happy to. I never thought the day as a Tamil, I never, and somebody who's a Tamil and also works with Muslims, I never thought the day would come when I would see the Rajapaksas unpopular because they've always been very popular. When they lost in 2015, it was a very close result. And the thing that made the difference that time was a minorities, minority vote. Right. They, they were the, the kingmakers, but they haven't been for a long time because as long as more than half the Sinhalese population votes for the Rajapaksas, the minority vote means right. nothing, right. We, this if that really makes sense. The most phenomenal overview, I really I just, thank you so much it's it's really incredible how um how many kind of um uh, confusions you've you've kind of uh, cleared up um i have one uh, small question that i i have it's probably not small but uh, we're a little um short on time and then i have a slightly bigger question to end with so um, i'm going to give you both and then you can fold them in however you see fit um i think for many people who are not familiar with the history of Sri Lanka, Buddhist monk and violence don't seem to belong in the same sentence. Um, and so can you can you um, speak to that, how how that narrative perhaps has been created? Or um, I think um, that that seems very confusing for a lot of people. The bigger question is, you spoke earlier um, when we were talking today about hope. And so I would, um, and I don't want to mean to very Pollyannishly end on a happy note. I'm not looking for that, but I'm curious um, what you see is now some viable ways forward um, to take that hope. But let's start with the monks. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> the thing is that, you know, I'm a scholar and I'm also a Sri Lankan. So I don't tend to hold sentimental <laughs> beliefs about majority <laughs> religions you can tell me if you want that hinduism is a beautiful religion and buddhism is a beautiful religion i will agree with you but that's not really what we're in the habit of producing or i mean as, as either scholars or people who are minorities living in majoritarian areas okay so you, you these so are these are complicated yeah. you know the thing is that these uh, 
religious beliefs are complicated, they is historically complicated. In this case, Sri Lankan Buddhism is a is Theravada Buddhism, which is um, you know, so Thailand, Burma, Sri Lanka, for example, are good examples of um, countries which have which are Theravada Buddhist. It's very interesting, Theravada Buddhism. There's lots of amazing writing about Sri Lankan mm-hmm. Buddhism, actually, because it's very complicated, very long history. It's a very, it's, it's a, it's in Sri Lanka, Buddhism has a very strong lay tradition. It's not only about the monks in the right. way that the Tibetan tradition is. Right. Um, for example, much so, much more so. It has, um, and, you know, in, in that, but you know, Theravada Buddhism is very strongly associated with ideas about rule as well. Um, I mean, as it is in India, but, you know, not, not maybe Ambedkar, Ambedkarite Buddhism, obviously is a very different yeah. kind, but historically Buddhism is associated also with forms of conquest and, yes. and, and rule. So, I mean, Sri Lanka has this very interesting Buddhist history, and I urge you all to go, you know, to, to read about it. But just like any other majoritarian state religion that's also yoked to an ethnic identity, it is a very, it, it is that, it is the state religion, whereas Tamils are much more religiously mixed. I mean, yeah. Tamils are majority Hindu, yes, but there's a very big Christian minority and so Tamilness as an identity um, kind of it's becoming increasingly Hinduized now the VHP is really trying to make inroads into Sri Lanka but it still spans religious identity to some extent Catholics and um, you know Church of South India which is where I'm from also still play a part and then obviously Muslims are both in Sri Lanka are both considered an ethnicity and a religious community. Among, while there are Buddhists, uh, while there are Sinhalese who are Christians, Buddhism and singleness are considered to be really yoked together. It's a very strong linking. It's, it's, it's very asymmetric. People try to see Sri Lanka as a religious conflict where you have singular Buddhists and then Tamil yeah. Hindus, but it's really very asymmetric. Buddhism is central to majoritarian Sinhalese identity. And that goes along with its its Sangha. So like any other state religion, there are some very powerful orders, they're very powerful temples, many of them are linked to politicians. And Sri Lankan Buddhist monks have regularly, regularly called for the killing of of minorities. And And they continue to do so, of course, not all of them by any by any means. But there, you know, there's all this extorting of people to hold singular Buddhism up against these, right. against terrorists. So that is, I think that's yeah. the one thing. And I think, right. you know, for our audience, just think about Hin- Hinduism and Hindutva yeah. in, in yeah, India, yeah. That right? May, that, hel- that helps a lot. I think um, uh, kind of from conversations I've had, it's something that's it's a sticking point. I think that's partially the, the way Buddhism is perceived in um, the global north or and it doesn't it's... mean that you know Buddhists are, all Buddhists are like that or you know my sure. my father is Sinhalese you know he's from a very devout Buddhist family my grandmother was an extremely devout very saintly figure and then others are more so or less so I mean it's you know it's sure. it's a it's yeah. it's everyday religious practice right you know my I mean Christianity is a minority religion in in Sri Lanka it's somewhat persecuted actually but it doesn't mean it's not 
a majority religion elsewhere. Yeah. Right. And with, with all that that entails. So I think that's the thing. The, the thing about hope, I think maybe, you know, um, one thing is also to think about what is what would be the best things to come out of the current protests mm -hmm. and what would be the worst thing? So I, I, I think that the the worst things are somewhat inevitable, as I said there's the, the the road forward in terms of the economic crisis looks very bleak mm -hmm. very very bleak and i think that what a lot of um, sri lankan activists are calling for and i think that's what a lot of protesters want to is some way to stabilize the country's economy with the best thing being an insistence that if taxes are reimposed that it is differentially targeting the wealthy and the poor and that a food a food redistribution and food prices are prioritized for the population that somehow in the midst of what is going to be a terrible bailout we can preserve something of the Sri Lankan welfare state and also maintain that the poor um, in fact are you know are kind of prioritized yeah. so some people say maybe we should have a wealth tax I'm all for a wealth tax so that's that those are the the best that could come out of it is one is a mainstream demand and then there's some other demands that a few of us would like, and I hope that comes to bear. So the mainstream demand, and I really hope that the, that the opposition has any political will to do it, is to abolish the presidency. Mm. And, and the, so Sri Lanka has an executive president, but actually it's a prime ministerial system. It, it was a prime ministerial system from 1947, but we had a very autocratic president in, in the 70s, J.R. Jayawardena, who did a very suspicious, dubious referendum as well to extend his term. He brought in the executive presidency. So it's a, it's a presidency with enormous power sat on top of a prime ministerial system. And occasionally it has meant that the president and the prime minister's party are from different parties as well. We have had that um, as well, but it has never been good for Sri Lanka and regularly presidents have been elected promising that they'll abolish it and unsurprisingly have not. And the current president not only embraced the executive presidency, he recently did an amendment called the 20th amendment, which vastly expanded its power. So what most protests, what a lot of protests are asking for, and which is a perfectly mainstream demand is uh, that abolish the presidency now. We don't want it. We want a return to a prime ministerial system. We want the, the powers of the president, even if they, if they don't abolish the, ex the presidency, abolish the executive presidency, which is huge. We want a capped, maybe like India, where you have like kind of a figurehead president, we, we're fine with that. But really, this, this kind of political structure just has to, has to go. That is a very, actually a surprisingly popular demand. Yeah. And it's going to be very hard to impeach this president. This, both the president and the prime minister are hanging on with their fingernails. Maybe the only thing to do is if enough MPs cross over from his party, that they can, they can vote in parliament. Right. Right. To abolish the presidency. So that is the kind of more probable outcome. The thing that I would really like to see is that 
um, one legislative and one political. One thing would be to see if the current protests could continue on this kind of mode of not blaming the minorities for something. Mm -hmm. That would be a desperate hope for many people mm -hmm. that out of this, we could see a more plural political moment come through. We see some protesters asking, putting up you know, pictures of journalists and asking, many of them are also single the journalists who disappeared, asking the government where they went. And some people are also saying, where are the other people who have disappeared? So if only it could be that ordinary Sinhalese people will start to see the to, to start to see the kind of terror of the Sri Lankan state mm. and start to acknowledge again mm. the, the, the frightening realities for Tamils and Muslims in Sri Lanka. That would be the most hopeful thing that could come out of it. Legislatively, personally, I would like to see the special task force that is his paramilitary police force abolished. Um, the Sri Lankan detentions, the, all the kind of detention centers in the gray areas, the kind, the kind of militarization that has overtaken the legal system, um, kind of, you know, those, those shut down, those things opened up. People have been calling for Sri Lanka's very draconian Prevention of Terrorism Act to be curtailed. Right. So there are all kinds of things that have to do with Sri Lanka's militarized state that if only this moment at the moment within the protesters persists, there's a possibility that we might be looking, I hope, at a future where, where Sri Lanka, the kind of militarization we've seen over the war and after might start to be rolled back. Um, I guess it depends on how far out we are, you know, whether, <laughs> whether it's a going back or rather it's more like a imagining a new thing that we can, we, can, we, can do, we can do together. But that I think is the possibility of hope. On one hand, things have gone wrong before, but on the other hand, and as I said, the future is bleak. But on the other hand, I don't think when you're Sri Lankan, you can afford to be too bleak because when it's, when it's, your, when it's a place of the pe people you love and you care for, the, even the ones who threaten <laughs> to kill you. I mean, when, 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 it's some, when it's a place where your past and your future is invested, you can't afford to only predict gloomy futures because even if the future is gloomy you have to hope that that something better is on its way because there is that what else can we can we do but but hope so I know there are members of Tamil diaspora who said well people deserve what they get because look they voted for this these Rajapaksas this is this is what happens when you vote for these things and I understand the anger and bitterness behind that, but I also think that people in Sri Lanka are starving and there has to be something better, yeah. better, to, better to come. So there's always has to be hope because you can't afford to give up on places yeah. if you're from there. That, what, what, what is the benefit of that? Yeah. 
Well, thank you so much for, I know you spend your entire life right now um, on Twitter, finding out what's happening, retweeting, communicating with your um, family and loved ones in Sri Lanka. And, and uh, I know you've done radio interviews and in among all that you found time to be on the SASPOD. Um, and I think um, for all our audience and myself as well, I just, I feel like I have a much clearer foundation now going forward, reading the news, keeping up to date and not feeling quite so lost in wondering how we got to the point that we're at now. So thank you so much and um, happy new year. And of course, um, all, all good wishes to you and uh, all the people in your community. Thank you so much, Larissa. Thank you for listening to the SASPOD, the South Asian Studies at Stanford podcast. Find out all about the Stanford Center for South Asia at southasia.stanford.edu and find us on social media. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thank you for joining us, and I hope you can tune in again soon. Oh, <laughs>